Hey, all of life. Jared here. Uh, we weren't able to get our recording uh, this week, so I'm going to teach through the passage that we were in. I actually skipped Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, and just went right to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And then we're going to, uh, I'll revisit uh, this coming week or the following week, Matthew chapter 7, 12, and then just give some context. That's the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and prophets. So we're going to get to that at a later date. But here is the text that we're in today. Uh, it says this, Jesus speaking, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. A striking thing about God and his kingdom is how decisive he is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, completely decisive. No squishiness whatsoever to God's way. And the bar for his kingdom, it's far from low. So to him, to Jesus, to the Father, to the Holy Spirit, to God unified, Partial loyalty is actually disloyalty. Allegiance is the cost to us for entry to his kingdom. Allegiance would be like being uh, displaying a sense of readiness or openness to turn over every single aspect of our lives to King Jesus. Why? Why, does, why is that what he wants of us? Why allegiance? Because the cost to Jesus for our entry to his kingdom was his life. And so, because he's come to us, Jesus has taken on flesh, lived life in our place, perfectly obeying the will of the Father, perfectly obeying the law of God, um, dying as a criminal, being buried, suffering, learning obedience. That was his cost for our entry into his kingdom in order to bring us in. So, naturally then, our response is to value that, to value his sacrifice, to value his goodness, to value his generosity, and to take him at his word. And so when I say allegiance is our cost for entry, then how many of you right now are thinking, all right, great, not a problem, I got it. I hope you're not thinking that. I'm certainly not thinking that as I uh, look at myself a theologian named D.A. Carson, he says, nothing could be more calamitous or could bring more calamity than to meditate long and hard on the Sermon on the Mount and then to resolve to improve a little. The Sermon on the Mount actually describes a radically different way of life, not simply an adjusted way of life. That's not what Jesus is looking for. He's not looking for you to just make some tweaks. What he's looking for is our willingness, your willingness to go wherever he is, not necessarily where we want to go. So to say it differently, what he wants from us is that he would be Lord. He would be in command of our lives, no longer us. So according to Jesus, we're either fully with him or we're not even with him. Either we're citizens of his kingdom or we're not. We're either in or out. We're hot or cold. There's no lukewarm. Lukewarm is the temperature of spit, and spit gets spit out. And so this troubles me personally, especially when I turn and I begin to evaluate myself. I start to ask, like, total allegiance to you, Jesus, for real? Do you even know me? He does know me. He 
sees it all, all the way to my core, all the way to the bottom. And so as I ask that question, I am troubled by my lack of devotion to the king of all. And for the record, it's hard to know what to do with that at times. Like, uh, I'm struggling right now to kind of make sense of where I begin and end and where ministry, my vocation as a pastor, my calling, my job, my responsibility as a pastor, where does that begin and end? Uh, I took, we took some significant vacation this summer and, uh, and traveled and we're out of town. And so the whole family is together. And what I find, what I found myself doing was because, um, it's in my role description to have communion with the Lord and then to, um, to, to minister and to serve his people as I kind of pushed away from my vocation on vacation. I found myself pushing away from God himself, like kind of checking out and living into some functional atheism. Just like, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'll kind of leave you behind, Lord. And so it's one thing to choose Jesus as I have and as many of you have and to fail often and to struggle along on our path. That's part of the Christian life. That's the process of sanctification. We're people in progress. We're becoming more and more Christ-like. But it's a, it's another thing altogether to like to just reject Him and to choose to stay on the outside. To maybe you just you don't believe He's God. You're 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 not convinced. Like okay, that's where you are right now. It's altogether yet another thing to remain undecided on Jesus. To make no decision regarding Jesus is to make a decision to stay on the outside. So as Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing is he's aiming at our responsiveness. He's not asking for our lip service. He's not asking for cute, like, prom style songs to Jesus, you know, love songs. He's not asking for reverent sounding prayers. He's not asking for us to, to do an act and to play a part. He's asking for our lives. That's what he wants. He wants your life. He wants my life. Our lives actually tell the real story of our worship, who and what we're looking to is for a sense of peace and a soothed conscience, for a sense of who we are and identity. The way that we live tell the real story of our worship, tells the real story of our worship. Here's the big idea today. I'm going to repeat this fairly often. Followers of Jesus choose to follow Jesus every day. Followers of Jesus choose to follow him. It's a decision of the will. We choose to follow him, and it's a common decision. It's a frequent decision. It's an everyday decision. This is the whole foundation of our discipleship. We defer to him. We submit to him. We choose him. We listen to him. We ask him. We go to him. We trust him. We depend on him. He's gone the entire way, the whole way for us to the point of his own death for our pardon. And so his record, his life and his teaching, it stands. We don't give and we should not give anyone else de facto authority like this. That's a recipe for abuse. That's a recipe for manipulation, for misconduct. Ultimately, it's something that the Bible speaks of as idolatry, where we're elevating someone, a human, over him. There's no one over him, no one perfect like him. And so as his followers, as his disciples, we fix our eyes on him to know the way. 
the author John, he wrote a gospel about Jesus. And in John chapter 14, he's, uh, he's answering a disciple named Thomas who is known for his own skepticism. He's known for a need to touch and to see and to feel. He wants evidence. And so Jesus is kind of for, he's foretelling his death and his resurrection and it's freaking the disciples out and he's using some veiled language and they don't know what to make of all of it. And so Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. You're not talking plain here. How can we know the way? Give us a map. Give us something in writing. Give us directions turn by turn. I, I need some help. And Jesus responds to Thomas and he says, Hey, Thomas, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Then he goes on to say something kind of surprising. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So you're seeing a, an imprint, a type. You're seeing the Father's goodness. You're seeing exactly what the Father is like in me. And then Jesus finishes that by saying, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Elsewhere, Jesus will say something to the Jews that was very blasphemous. He say, I and the Father are one. In this passage that I began by reading, Jesus teaches us that there are actually two gates guarding the way to two kingdoms. There's only two. There's not one. There's not three. There's not five. There's only two. One of them leads to death. One of them leads to life. One of them is broad. One of them is narrow. One is occupied by crowds. One is occupied by Christ and his citizens, citizens of his kingdom. So as he speaks, he says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gates represent the entry point into two conflicting, opposing, diverging kingdoms. They're going in different directions. There are only two. They're total opposites. We know this by the contrast that Jesus uses in this passage, and he'll follow it up in the coming passages with um, couplets of these two kind of diverging, contrasting alternatives and norms of the kingdom. So uh, in this Gates teaching, Jesus, um, he, he says that essentially that one gate governs entry to the kingdom of heaven and the other gate governs entry, governs entry into the kingdom of darkness. If we know anything about gates, it's that gates, they exist for a reason. Why? What's the reason that they exist for? They exist to give access to areas that have boundaries, which is why you rarely see a gate without a fence or a border. In fact, if you ever do see a gate without a fence or a border, it's an arbitrary gate. It's an artistic gate. It's meant to make a point, but it doesn't really have a function beyond that. So what gates do is they make the place of entry obvious, don't they? We don't ever board a plane or we shouldn't ever board a plane without being really mindful of the gate. You're careful about the gate in an airport that you're entering through. Why? Because the gate that you enter through determines your destination. It determines where you end up. And so Jesus is clearly and emphatically teaching us. He's saying, seek the narrow gate. He says as much. He says, enter by it. He doesn't say enter by whichever one you choose, but enter by the narrow gate. And so this is coming on the heels of his instructions earlier in Matthew chapter 7 for us to ask and to seek and to knock. In Matthew chapter 7, verse um, 7, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. 
and it will be open to you. According to Jesus, if you and I knock on the narrow gate, the door will be opened and we will find the path that leads to life and enter by the narrow gate. He's an authoritative teacher. Matthew's going to tell us as much. In just a, a few verses, as he describes the astonishment of the crowds and the people because he was teaching with authority. And this authoritative teacher, Jesus, he deals us truth. And the truth that he deals us is often narrow. It's a narrow kind of truth. It's an exclusive kind of truth. It has boundaries. The whole Sermon on the Mount has been this exercise in discovering the norms of Jesus's, of God's narrow kingdom. His kingdom has clearly drawn borders. It's the poor in spirit, according to Jesus, who enter the kingdom. It's not the proud. It's not even the, obli- the, the oblivious. It's the poor in spirit, those who recognize spiritual bankruptcy. It's those who make peace, who will be called sons of God. To be clear here, he's appealing to ancient Roman adoption law. So women aren't going to become men and therefore become sons, but rather all, both men and women, both genders are going to, as God's people, citizens of the kingdom, they are going to receive their inheritance as if they were a firstborn son. So it's the peacemakers who will be called sons of God, not those who seek controversy, not those who avoid controversy and conflict. It's those who deal with their anger and lust instead of raging at people and using people. It's those who love their enemies, those who give to the needy, those who pray, those who fast. He's describing all of this in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's those who repent. That was the very first word, verb of his ministry, to repent, to change their minds about who God is and thereby to put their trust in God our Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom of heaven, it's not for those sitting on the fence. It's not for those choosing to be outside the gate, but it's only for those inside the gate who are carefully navigating the hard path. Jesus says the path is going to be narrow. It's going to be hard. It's going to come with some adversity. Navigating hard paths, it takes work. It takes care. Don't miss this. Uh, Once on the quest of following Jesus, there are going to be guaranteed some ups and downs. There's going to be sweat. There's going to be tears. There could even be blood. It's going to cost us. Some paths are harder to walk on than others. Uh, Just last weekend, we took some friends to explore Tubbs Hill, show them the beauty of Lake Coeur d'Alene. And so we ended up walking down to one of the beaches and swimming for a minute. And, uh, and we have uh, four kids and our two youngest daughters, they, uh, they, they don't find the easy trails, the wide trails on Tubbs to be difficult to navigate because this, This hiking system has a mix of wide and easy trails, but it also has some narrow, rocky trails, too. So for our youngest daughters, when we were on the wide, flat parts, you know, they could just like they they could just have fun with their friends. They're looking around. They're not really paying attention to where they're walking. But when the trails start to get narrow and rocky, it began to give them some trouble and some fits. So they started to recognize or five and uh, and six year olds started to recognize they really have to pay attention. It's in that moment um, that they most want daddy or mom nearby so that they can follow us, so they can watch our steps, so they can watch how we navigate the terrain. Or they just like want to reach up and grab a hand. Uh, my youngest 
daughter, uh, she decided that her perfectly good legs uh, just didn't want to work anymore. And so she decided to co-opt my perfectly good legs and say, Dad, carry me. And That's in some ways a picture of the kingdom. Like we're looking to Jesus for his way. We're looking to him to navigate the terrain. He is the one who has entered the narrow gate. And there's even more to that, which I'll get to in just a moment about the gate, the narrow gate in specific. So Jesus is teaching us to look carefully at the gates. He's teaching us. He wants us to look carefully at the paths and therefore the fruit of those paths in order to know where we are and in order to know the direction that we're headed in. So he wants you and I to be thoughtful about our course. He wants his followers, those who are his worshipers, to choose to follow and to worship him every day. That's the big idea. Followers of Jesus choose to follow Jesus every day. Worshippers of Jesus choose to worship Jesus every day. As he contrasts these gates, one is wide, one is narrow. The wide has an easy way to it. There's lots of people. There's crowds on it. The narrow one uh, can be fraught with difficulty. And those, according to Jesus, who find it are few. So here's what we're going to do for the rest of our time together, for what I'm going to do in the rest of this message. I'm just going to draw out three uh, principles from this passage, and I'm going to apply them. So here's the very first principle. Identify the narrow gate and choose it. Notice it. Choose it. See it. Choose it. Narrow gates are like narrow doors. A gate and a door can be used interchangeably. A gate and a door similarly are entry points. Right. So you move through them with intentionality and they require you to uh, to leave some things behind. You're not taking everything with you through a doorway. You're not taking everything with you through a gate. Ever been uh, to the bathroom on an airplane? Those things are the narrowest doors on the face of the earth or uh, the sky if you're in the air, right? The kingdom of heaven, it's similar. It's got a door and a gate and we move to it and through it with intentionality. Here's what I want to be really clear about regarding the gate. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, is the gate. He's the door. Enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the son of God. Enter by Messiah. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And he'll get even more specific in John's gospel. John chapter 10 uh, verses 1 through 11 is he's using some similar language to teach his disciples. And I'll just read this. I'm not going to give a lot of commentary, but you'll see uh, just how specifically points to himself as the gate or the door. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, or truth, truth, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him and they know his voice. A stranger they won't follow, but they will flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. So this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus says to them, truth, truth, I say to you, I am the door. You hear the language. I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved 
and will go in and out and find pasture. Did you hear that? If anyone enters by me, by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. This is metaphoric language for life. He'll make it even more explicit right here. Verse 10, John 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So that's the way of destruction. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's the way of life. In verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's speaking of his character. That's the character of the one who is the narrow gate. Jesus calls you and I to enter by him and to follow him with purpose. How? By choosing his way, his attitudes, his course, by choosing him daily. To choose and follow him daily, it means that we measure the entirety of our lives according to what he wants. So our response is when things go wrong. We're looking to him. Shape and shift my desires. In fact, today, like not having the audio from uh, yesterday's gatherings and having to re-record this, I was disappointed. I was bummed out. I was frustrated. And I knew in that moment, having just preached that sermon yesterday, that I needed to apply the con the, the context, and I needed to, to I needed to bring this home to myself. And so I had to take a time out. I put myself in timeout, and I basically said. I have to shift my perspective on this. No, no, no. Actually, Lord Jesus, I need you to speak to me, to help me see what I need to see in this moment. So I needed to measure my attitude in that moment. When things shifted for me and I felt frustrated, I needed to shift and consult him rather than just myself. So we measure the entirety of our lives according to what he wants. So yeah, when things go wrong, but also like our words in any given situation, our relationships, the way that we show up and work for the boss or work alongside our coworkers, our willingness to forgive or apologize. That's all being informed by the way, the attitude, the nature of Jesus. We go to him and we look to him for clues and guidance on generosity and our use of money, our parenting. Like all of life is for him. The whole goal of every true disciple's life is to grow more and more like Jesus. It's to become Christ-like. As Romans 8 uh, states it, it's to be conformed, to be formed into the image of Christ, Christ-likeness. And so we ask for his and the Father's will to be done, for the kingdom to come. He'll say a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and uh, 24 through 26, he's teaching his disciples in a different context, but the principle is the same. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, keep it for himself, will lose it. Whoever wants to govern his own way, you're actually going to lose your life. You're going to lose your soul. But whoever loses his life for my sake, who looks to me rather than self, for my glory, Jesus says, he'll find life. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Followers of Jesus choose to follow Jesus every day. 
Step one, identify the gate, identify the way. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's my second point, principle application. We don't shrink back when the way is hard. We don't shrink back. We don't pull out when the way is hard. Luke's gospel has a teaching that hits some similar themes. And so Luke records Jesus saying, strive. Listen to that verb, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. To strive is to make a great effort to achieve or to obtain something. Christian, there are going to be times when you strive to choose Jesus, when you do choose him, and your life doesn't get easier. There are going to be times when your life actually becomes more difficult. You're like, Lord, I'm doing all the right things. I'm choosing you. I'm living in your will. Why are, Why do my circumstances suck? Why am I depressed? Why am I struggling? Why am I at odds with my spouse or my friends or my roommates or my people? What in the world is going on? Why are financial times so stinking rough? It's going to get so rough that at times you are going to second guess Jesus. It's going to get rough enough that you are going to second guess your faith. You're going to second guess your church family. Tears are going to come and you're going to feel. You're even going to give in to the belief that you're all alone. Sometimes it's just going to come. No fault of yours. You didn't do anything wrong. You're living into the will of God. These are not consequences for disobedience. It's results of the fall or other people's sin. And you're suffering because of it. The answer is to look to Jesus, to persevere, to endure. And there are other times when suffering is going to come your way because you're an idiot. (laughs) It's come my way because I've been an idiot. It's going to come your way because of foolishness and folly and selfishness and sin. Jesus is preparing you and I through this teaching to choose which gate and which path you're on. He's preparing us for the hard way by, number one, just giving us a heads up by this teaching. And number two, most importantly, I think, by sending us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, who will help us pray when all we've got in the guts are groans. That's all we've got. We don't have words. We have tears. We have groans. It might look like a blank stare at the wall. You don't have anything. You're wrong. But his spirit is going to intercede and help you hang on to your faith. Not only that, the spirit will remind us that Jesus is present, even though atheism sounds like a preferable alternative. The spirit, he's going to do even more. He's going to bring Jesus's teaching back into our minds when doubt and unbelief are assaulting us. Jesus won't leave us to our ways or forsake those on the hard path. No way. He will not forsake his own. But he will turn away those with hard hearts. Those who choose to follow their own path. Their end is destruction, according to him. They will be cut off from life, truth, beauty. Remember D.A. Carson's words, nothing could be more calamitous than to meditate long and hard on the Sermon on the Mount and then resolve to improve a little. Carson will go on to write, Jesus' way demands repentance, trust, and obedience. 
There's cost to following Jesus. Our salvation is free and our sanctification comes by an amount of work as we, according to the Apostle Paul, work out our salvation with fear and trembling as we strive to enter by the narrow door. He's not, Jesus is not only the gate, but he's also the way that leads to life. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. For through him, who, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles here. We have access through Jesus in one spirit to the Father. This is a deeply Trinitarian verse. And then Paul writes, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which means that we stand on their teaching and the record of their proclamation. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, the church, the household of God being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, a holy dwelling place for God himself. And then Paul finishes by saying, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Therefore, church, do not shrink back when things are hard. He's given us his Spirit. He's given us his Son. How will he not also give us all things? Followers of Jesus choose to follow Jesus every day, even when life sucks. Here's my third point, my final point. We don't look to the crowds for the way of Jesus. We don't look to the crowds for a sense of righteousness. We don't look to the crowds to determine what is right and wrong. We don't look to the crowds for the way of Jesus. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. There's going to be a lot of people on that path. It's going to look all good. It's going to feel good, but Jesus gives us warning for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The way with the crowds leads to destruction. Following uh, crowds for the way of righteousness is almost always a mistake. The crowds love the sound of their own voice. Can you hear it? Follow your heart. Be a good human. Love wins. Choose your gender. Sleep with whoever you want. Vote Republican or Democrat or third way. Get vaccinated. Wear a mask. Don't be a sellout and get vaccinated or wear a mask. Don't pull out of the women's all around. Pull out of the women's all around. All the crowds have chatter. Right? All roads lead to God, they say. It's right. They're actually right. All roads do lead to God, just not in the way that they think. Some roads will lead to redemption. The road to God will lead to redemption for some, and the road to God will lead to judgment for others. People are all, there's the crowd saying, like, black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter, trans lives matter, whose lives matter. All the crowds are fighting, saying things like critical race theory is going to be the end of the world as we know it saying things like critical race theory is going to save the world as we know it. The crowds, if they have taught us anything, if they've gotten anything right, it's how to be insane. 
seriously, like, I'm not saying the topics that I just named aren't important. They're just not the pathways to peace with God. They're not going to solve the problems among men. They're not going to lead us and give us righteousness. They're not going to lead us to experience abundant life, life to the full. The narrow way cannot be pursued if we are more concerned about pleasing men than we are God. And that's going to lead us into some really unpopular territory in our culture. Church, buckle up. It's coming. Days are getting darker. We're nowhere near where our brothers and sisters in China or Southeast Asia or India or sub-Saharan Africa. We're nowhere. We're, we're not suffering. We, we're, we are not persecuted at this point, but we are being marginalized. And so even if our homes and possessions are plundered, even if our way of life is lost, we should resolve, according to Jesus and his apostle Paul, to do good to all men. But we should fear God alone and aim to please him above all else. Paul would write as much in Galatians 6.10 saying, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all. Let us work. It's not just passive here. It's active. Let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Followers of Jesus choose to follow Jesus every day. If you're, uh, if you're trying to determine the way of Jesus from the way of the crowds and you're having kind of, uh, kind of a hard time, like in culture, just distinguishing which way Jesus would take, look to the Beatitudes, look to Matthew chapter five, look to the norms of the kingdom, look to the character attributes of Jesus's people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize their need, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, not those who push their weight around, but the meek are the ones who will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're the ones who will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. They're the ones who will receive mercy. So those who give mercy will also be recipients of God's mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Followers of Jesus choose to follow Jesus every day. I'm going to end with a quote from D.A. Carson. He says, Men will not, or women for that matter, will not gain the kingdom by worshiping nature. Won't gain the kingdom by pious sentiment. That is like looking the part, being a holy roller. They're not going to gain the kingdom by drifting into salvation without decision and commitment, just kind of waffling about, making no decisions. That's not how you're going to get to the kingdom. You don't drift toward the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is radically different. We're not going to gain the kingdom by hedonism and self-expression. D.A. Carson writes, they will enter life by coming under the kingdom's norms, 
They will be saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, or they will head for destruction. On this point, Jesus insists. End quote. So I want to leave you asking this question of yourself. How do you resolve to follow Jesus today? Tomorrow? Each day? A couple of ways that you can do that is endeavor to remember Jesus as early as possible in your day. And when you do, say hi. Say hi in prayer. Say hello. Open the conversation. Begin to express your gratitude to him for whatever it is in your life that you are grateful for. Whoever it is that you're grateful for, begin to bring your needs before him. Kind of examine the events and the ups and downs of your coming day, the contours of your coming day. Examine those in light of him. If you need wisdom, ask him for it. He will grant you wisdom. Encounter him through reading or listening to his word. You might uh, just read a simple go- uh, one, like one chapter of a gospel or one of the New Testament letters. Just consider the way of Jesus. That's a way to choose Jesus every day. Another way is to seek to do unselfish good to the people around you. So where you have an opportunity to do good to somebody, commit to do good to them. Another way you might choose Jesus is as you consume media or read the news, consider the stories they're telling and how Jesus's way might interact with that or might contradict it. Choose him, choose his way, choose to embody his attitude. His belief, his character and nature. Those are just a few ways that you could choose to see, to follow Jesus. One last way might might just be that, uh, be on the lookout. This is a point that I had to apply to myself today when I, I re- realized the recording that I had to re-record this message was that when things don't go your way, or when you uh, just be on the lookout for stress, for shifts in your attitude or your mood, for shifts in your body, just your physiology where your you know your stomach drops or where you start to feel nervous or where you feel a great deal of stress, just be on the lookout for those things. And as you identify them, instead of just dealing with them on your own, choose to come to go to Jesus with them, to ask him. He's alive, he's present. He's not a theory. He's not a dead teacher. He's alive at the right hand of the Father, governing all things. And if you have entered by him, his smile is upon you. But if you reject him, you will suffer wrath. Followers of Jesus choose to follow Jesus every day. Let's get after it. Let's get after him. Love you, church. Father, make it come to pass. In Jesus' name, amen.